All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. I know what's happening. I know what's happening. I'm recording this on uh, Wednesday morning. So if anything happens between now and when this posts later tonight in the middle of the night, this is Wednesday morning. We're going to post an interview today with uh, Shep Gordon that was recorded before the election, but uh, but it's what we do. It's a good interview. It's a great interview. A lot of wisdom. A lot of talk about Alice Cooper and Groucho Marx and other stuff. But I know that seems irrelevant. I mean, everything seems irrelevant now. That that is the the feeling that uh, that I got last night. We were on set late, checking in with election results. And it was it was devastating. There's there's no other way to look at it for for people that believe in progress and change and cultural evolution. It's devastating for those reasons. Whoever you decided to vote for. And the feeling last night there was a there was a selfish panic. That, you know, what does this mean? How scared do I have to be? And then you start thinking, like, how scared do we have to be? And, you know, what, it, what, how, you know, what is this, what does this mean? And, and innately, my, my first, my first reaction, which is surprising, uh, but not, not really for me, is, is to, to, to become despondent and depressed and, 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 and grief stricken and, and self pitying and, and, and just defeated. The bottom line is there's a there's a fucking gaping wound in this country and, and I don't I don't know I don't I don't know how it gets fixed. I, I know that I gotta keep talking. This isn't fundamentally a political show, but I, I believe that uh, he was the wrong guy. And I and I believe a, a, a lot of people got suckered. And I believe that we witnessed one of the the longest and most insanely compelling long cons ever executed. And I who are the marks? Well, I guess on some level, more than half of this country, maybe the world, and this isn't the first time that someone has completely hoodwinked an entire nation. There's plenty of racism, plenty of misogyny, plenty of sexism, plenty of anti-Semitism, plenty of the worst parts of, of any country. There's plenty of that, but there was just plenty of people whose reaction towards the slow progress of social, racial, and economic change, their reaction was Trump. So that means the predominant feeling is, fuck you, fuck change, let's bring it back. Let's bring back something I understand, something narrow something not only conservative, but something that feeds and justifies an entitlement that is shifting. Don't change anything. As a matter of fact, get rid of 
the change and progress we made because it doesn't doesn't jive with me. So this is, you know, this is where we're at. And you can sit there and go, well, you know, he's not my president. Many of them did it through Obama. But the but the truth is, is that, you know, the way it works is that he is. He's he's everyone's president. The president reflects the country. If you got a problem with him, you got a problem with the country. So what do we do? Do do I sit in the despondent, grief stricken futility of 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 someone who who gives up? No, man. No. This is a shitty time and place. He will be a shitty president because he's a shitty person. So what does that mean as an American? As somebody who believes in change and wants to, you know, try to fight. Well, you you keep fighting. You keep talking. You keep tight with your communities. And, and we, we try to fucking heal this gaping wound. Maybe I'm being too optimistic. What, am I going to yell at people? Fuck, I lived through eight years at W. I fought that fight. Lost. Look, what I do here is I talk to people about struggle, about art, about creativity, about personal problems, personal awareness, uh, about social struggle. But they, I mean, I don't, I don't know what else to do. So maybe it's time to realize that tweeting is not social action. Tweeting is not activism. I mean, I got to change my life too. You know, on some levels, you get a little spoiled when you're insulated and you get a little disconnected from what other people are going through. Maybe even your neighbors, maybe even, you know, people that we don't know anymore or that we thought we knew and that we didn't. But continuing to talk about these things, it's, it's important. I mean, it's, 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 it's the answer, really. And that's what I'm going to keep doing. And that's what people should be doing all the time in their lives. I mean, fucking talk to people, talk to people in depth, feel out where their pain is at, feel out where you have common ground, feel out, you know, why, why we can all live together. But, you know, under the surface was all this fucking hatred and anger and, and just garbage emotions that built up. But the weird thing is, is when you get one-on-one or in a group of people, in a circle full of people, things are different. Seeing someone face-to-face, feeling their life in your face and in your heart in that moment, feeling that, that makes a fucking difference. Now we're all fucking detached. We're all floating in our little narcissism pods that we communicate from. How do you think so much of this hate took place? The fucking phones. Now, I don't want to sound like an old man, but these are the extensions of our brains. These are, you know, this idea that if you're smart enough, if you're together enough, you can adapt to technology and use it appropriately. It's not true. It's a, it's a, it's a, an illusion of social connection. That's innately cowardly and innately limited in terms of human connection. 
It's got nothing to do with it. Man, I got, it's like, we work together. We work with these people, these people. Who are these people? You decide who they are. We're all people. We've got to fucking talk to each other. You can't just tweet at them. You can't just like what they posted. I don't know. It might be the only way out of this. I mean, yeah, don't you ever have this fantasy that, that all that shit just breaks? I mean, what is it really? That's what I do in here. I talk to people and all of my assumptions about anybody. Granted, I'm not talking about politics. Usually I'm not talking about, you know, social change necessarily. But everything I assumed about anybody that's ever sat in front of me was wrong because it was limited by whatever input I decided to focus on to define them. And when they sit down as living, breathing, fragile people, everything opens up. Because that's what humans do. And we've lost a lot of that. And this may sound trite, but what else do we got but each other? I mean, fuck. I've worked with Republicans. I've had them open for me. I've, I've, I know people and I've worked with people and I am friends with people that think differently than me. Drastically. That's one of the beautiful things about comedians and about this world that we live in for the most part. Is that you can, you can have those different views. Now, who knows if there's even a context anymore that will harness this shit. I don't know. But all we got is each other. I know that. I know. Sounds trite. True. True. Fuck. All right. So, for those of you who voted for him, I hope he, I hope he delivers what you want to deliver. I hope you're happy with yourselves. And because uh, we're all going to have to go through it together. And those of us who didn't, that believe... In a different type of country, that fight continues, and I'll keep talking here, and I'll keep talking to people, and I'll try to keep you entertained. I, I don't want to be selfish here, but I'm, you, you know, it just feels like things change. I don't know what the tone of things is going to be as we enter the new year, or how everything's going to pan out. I'll, I'll stay engaged, and I'll keep talking. But it is... Um, it is a, a sad and devastating blow for those of us who believed that, at the very least, social and economic change could, could happen and continue to happen. And it's a scary time. But I'll hang out, all right? Let's talk about show business and wisdom. Uh, Shep Gordon, he's got a new book out. It's called They Call Me Supermensch, A Backstage Pass to the Amazing Worlds of Film, Food, and Rock and Roll. He's a good guy. Uh, I wasn't sad and despondent and uh, feeling futility and hopelessness when I talked to him. Maybe that'll perk you up. All right, this is me and Shep Gordon.
You've been in a recording studio before. Once or twice. You know how that works. Yeah. You've yelled at some producers. No? No. Never. Don't yell. <laughs> Never yell. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I saw the movie. I saw Supermensch, and I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. But I, I thought to myself, he, he must have yelled once. Oh, yeah. I mean, there have been moments I've yelled. But I usually yell for theater. Oh, yeah? You know, it's uh, not real yelling. It's theater yelling. Oh, right, right, right. You so know? it's uh, for effect. Yeah. yeah. And, and There are times, you, you know, particularly doing what I do, you don't have time. To, to yell? To do stuff. You're in real time. Right. You know, so yeah. um, I remember there was a great moment of just one incident of when I had to really get forceful. Yeah. Um, against my personality. We, we played Moscow for the first time. With? Uh, Alice Cooper. Yeah. And there was a brand new basketball stadium. Yeah. And there was no seating behind the stage. So I told them they had to provide rope or some barricade. Yeah. And um, when I got back for showtime, about only an hour to go. Um, there was no rope yeah. or barricade. Right. And I really couldn't allow him to go on. I knew, and it was real time. Yeah. People were in the hall. Yeah. I didn't have time to be a nice guy and explain. Right. Um, was there, a, and there was a, a, they, a what, language uh, And there was barrier. a language barrier. And yeah. what they explained to me was they couldn't afford rope. Yeah, really? Yeah, this was when it was still communist. So it was like in the, what, late 70s? Yeah, this was the late 70s. Uh -huh. I couldn't afford rope. Really? Which I thought was just fantastic, but I couldn't. Did you throw out a few bucks to go no, get no. some rope? So I got really... Yeah. You know, intense. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm moving them out. You, the only way you're going to stop us from moving out. And I raised my voice. I said, yeah. we're leaving. You want to get the U.S. ambassador here. We are leaving. Uh -huh. And automatically, like, 3,000 soldiers showed up who were cheaper than rope, and they formed the human barricade, and we went on. <laughs> soldiers are cheaper than rope. rope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're all over. If we just go down the street, we'll get some. Well, you know, so Alice uh, Cooper was your first client yep. as still, a manager. That's still a client. Is he the only one that's still with Correct. you? Correct, yeah. But that's not because of you. You, you got out of the game, right, yeah, for the most the part? Yeah, yeah. So you, you're, you're a Jewish guy, uh -huh. obviously. Yeah, luckily. Yeah. And uh, so wh what do you come from? I mean, I like, I like the whole journey from... Uh, from uh, you know New York to Hollywood, but you yeah, were at Hollywood think, yeah, definitely a good time. I think I was a typical kid of the sixties. Yeah, uh, well, what what town we know, talking? I was from Oceanside, Long Island. Right, um, worked at a beach club like Flamingo Kid. Yeah, um, dated the daughter of the guy who was the great card player in Flamingo Kid. Oh, really? Yeah, but his name was Al Feldstein, who owned. Was Man it really based on that guy? Or yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It was, oh, it, 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 I don't know if it was based on him, but it was based on- That club? That moment in those clubs. Right. Every club had their guy. Oh, really? Yeah. They all had a guy with the pinky ring. Sure. Who had the most beautiful blonde wife. Right. Who wanted poker every night. or Not gangsters, just Not Jewish, gangsters Jewish gamblers. Yeah, mostly in the schmata business. Uh -huh. Um, right, so they're living on the island. They're working in the city. Correct, yeah. and that that was the big move. That was the big the, move. the the post immigrant yeah. uh, step up. Yep, and for the kids, um, we were the first generation that had some type of economic freedom. Mm -hmm. I, it wasn't big. Most of the parents were middle class, but it was still something. They wanted to give you a better life. Than they, they wanted had. us. So we all went to college. Most of us on some kind of a region scholarship. Were your parents from uh, born here? My parents were born here, first generation. But you had grandparents here. with yeah, accents. Yeah, who didn't read or write. And oh, really? Made matzo ball soup. Really? You had yeah. that all? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You grew up with the real... Uh, Fanny Frank. Uh-huh. My grandmother. Oh, yeah? Made the greatest latkes and blintzes. And so you live in the house? Always you had to get the chicken from the bottom when you went to the store. Oh, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> keys to life. Yeah. The wisdom. <laughs> the keys to life. <laughs> get the chicken from the bottom, chef. Right, because... Uh, <laughs> they she, put the old stuff on top. Right, the right. Suckers. They move it. They <laughs> rotate. 
I do that. I do I that. Do, I do all the Reach things. in the back, or you yeah. know, if, the, if it's oh, yeah, a bag yeah. of greens, always go in the back. I, I get his, I'll be at the stove cooking for 30 people and start laughing hysterically because yeah. I, I realize I'm channeling my grandmother, which of course. is completely insane. <laughs> well, that, yeah. Well, that, but that, that's, but that's what, what beautiful thing, thing about life is. About feeding people. Yeah, feeding people. Yeah. I mean, so that, I re- that tradition really came through. So, so what did your so dad do? He was, my dad was a bookkeeper who yeah. uh, never took his CPA, so never became an accountant. Uh-huh. Wonderful man. Yeah, uh, and he worked for what? Well, he worked yeah. for a handkerchief company. Uh, a handkerchief yeah. company. Most of the Jews worked somehow in the Schmatter, or in, when you moved out to the West Coast, it was yeah. an entertainment business. Right. When you're on the East Coast, there was somehow somewhere with the Schmatter business, because you always had a relative. Yeah, who could get you in? Who could get you in? Yeah, we'll get you. You can yeah. roll the carts around. I, I worked. I rolled the carts. <laughs> learned a great lesson. I learned two great lessons rolling the carts. Yeah. One, one I learned is you better be really careful if you're going to be good at what you do because uh-huh. you're going to make everybody else look bad. <laughs> and you're never going to get out of that job. Yeah. <laughs> so you better like the job. And the second thing I learned <laughs> is, um, which was the technicality only for that business, yeah. was that you always had to push your carts so you could look at a window because people would walk on the other side of the cart that was blind yeah. with a razor blade, oh, cut really? it, and take the dresses out. Oh, really? They'll so hit you always, like that? So you could tell who the new guys were right. if they weren't always next to a window. Right. And coming <laughs> back with missing yeah. dresses and not making the and delivery. And then you always had a, you, you couldn't, the, the, the place that everybody shipped from was called Gilbert Trucking. Mm-hmm. That's where those racks usually were going to. Yeah. was Gilbert Trucking. On to 10th, go out to the country. 10th Avenue. Yeah, knockoffs. And uh, if you came back in the 15 minutes it took for the run, that was not good because all the guys who had been there 30 years, it took them an hour and a half. Right. What are you doing, kid? Yeah, so I we got want... talked to right the first day I got my talking yeah. to. Have yeah. some breakfast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get something to eat. You're yeah. making us hey, look kid. bad. <laughs> Pissed off union guys before the union, I guess, though, was it? Yeah. Was there a union then? No, night? I don't yeah. think there was a union for that. I don't think but, so. Uh, so, so New York at that time was, uh, you know, that was the New York of of great you know grandeur like that was like the it was still in it right it, it was, was great grandeur and it was um political unrest uh-huh. it was the time of the war so this is, oh so the, so the, the early kids, 60s early 60s we were taking psychedelics yeah freed our already minds. already yeah, in the mid 60s right is when psychedelics like 66 really yeah and, and what hit at the same time was this whole anti-vietnam movement right where people took action yeah and action had effect you burn we burned our cards in the middle of the street you did you burn yeah i did you burned down Rotsi buildings, but it was this was across the country. It wasn't a nice. No, I point. know, I know. But like, like for you, you were you were politically. I was active. very active. Yeah. You were. I wasn't politically active. I was politically destructive. Uh huh. Um, so so active. you were. It was more of a, what everyone was doing. Correct. Yeah. Gave you a yeah. vent, and there was anger. Sure. And, and I. But felt, you had personal anger. Yes. About primarily based on the fear of going. Yeah, I had, I had fear of going. Napalming just seemed to me horrifying, unbelievable. How you could do that? How you could wake up in the morning and napalm people you never met? Yeah, was unbelievable. Right, that they made people do it was horrible. Right, and it just—it was a time when I think all college kids thought it was really for people to make money. Yeah, the armament dealers. It just turned ugly. So the information was getting out. You know, the fifties were over. This is the real deal. Yeah, and we affected it a little bit. Yeah. Um, So I think we all got a little bit empowered. Yeah. Then, you know, maybe we could actually do something. Right. Um, we, and who's president? LBJ? Well, it was right when Kennedy got shot. 
and so sixty three, yeah. and that was the beginning. That was the beginning of when the anti war movement started That's for when, you. Yeah, yeah. And that must have been devastating. You remember? Yeah. How old are you? I'm uh, seventy one. Just okay. 71. So like I'm fifty three. I was born in sixty three. So this was a baby show. I know it's a baby show. <laughs> yeah, and I need to learn. Come on, Grandpa. <laughs> you better, better shed some of that wisdom on me because I'm in trouble. But you remember the day John Kennedy was shot? Very with well. Clarity. Yeah, with clarity. I remember being in a place called Allenhurst. I was a freshman at college. We all got together in the street, in yeah. a big circle, yeah. held each other, cried. Oh, my God. It was really um, the end of sort of, of innocence. Yeah, I would, for the whole country. Yeah, for the whole country. And Maybe then for it's the just, world. Right, yeah. right? Yeah. That someone could be just taken yeah. out like that <sighs> wow. in, in, in daylight? And then you think of where it's come to today, what we accept. Oh, yeah, now we're just, as normal just numb and, and oh distracted. Yeah. And, and uh, I think everyone's in some sort of mild PTSD. Yeah, I, I think it needs, I mean, one of the things I've tried doing this book thing and having an opportunity yeah. to actually talk to someone other than my my immediate family yeah. yeah is to say that um there's nothing wrong with taking action right and sure somebody well, however you can however you can if somebody really needs to do something you can't just right it's a democracy yeah, you Let's can't use sit by and watch this thing go by because you're going to lose you know i told the last thing in my book says that, yeah um just where we dropped out of the womb you yeah. win or lose the game Oh, yeah. Which is pretty true. I mean, think about it. 90% of the country you drop out of the world. Yeah. You drop out of the womb, you're not going to be you or me. Not right. You're be sitting here at this microphone. Right. If you drop out in Somalia. Right. So just that, and do we want to give that up? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, wow. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, there's a, you know, luck of the draw, the cosmic the draw. luck of the draw, and don't give it up, man. You are the luckiest people on the planet. I, I don't, th I, I think that there is a lack of gratitude. And I, you know, I'm probably guilty of it as well, but, you, you know, I, I'm doing all right for myself, so that tempers some things. Right. But I, I do think that people lose sight of just what an amazing oh, country this God, is. just watch the news for five minutes. It's like, yeah. It's, just watch, or go travel somewhere. Yeah. You know, and see what's going on. The fact that, I mean... That I could be here having an interview with you, having written a book, that you could be here interviewing me. Yeah. How many places in the world with this? And we can say what we want to say. Uh, completely. Which is unbelievable. Right. So even if you had the opportunity and enough money to buy headsets mm -hmm. and there was a radio station yeah. that would broadcast. Yeah. We're not hiding doing yeah. it. The possibility. <laughs> sure. You know? No, I agree. I think yeah. that's a good way to frame gratitude. Mm -hmm. But uh, so you're 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 a Jewish kid. You're angry. You're you're burning draft cards. You're running around tripping. When was the first time you took acid? Uh, I didn't. I actually didn't take acid till my second year in college. The San Francisco Mime Troupe came through Buffalo, <laughs> and, and they had the acid. They decorated my Come Christmas on. tree with sugar cubes. Come uh, on! I swear, with sugar cubes. I said, "What is that?" And Peter who's the famous actor now who was one of the San Francisco Mime Troupe. He said, it's a- it's, uh, Coyote? LSD. Peter Coyote, yeah. thank you. It's uh, LSD. What's LSD? He told us. We yeah. sort of heard about it. Yeah. That was it. But that was the good shit. So he brought yeah. it from Owsley. Yeah. You know, that's like in the mid-60s. Yeah. That was like the first few batches. Yeah. And then, so, I, then I became, um, maybe would you say, um, his representative- for Buffalo, <laughs> Anthony Coyotes Morgan. or Owsley, <laughs> uh, uh, somebody. Yeah. I don't know who. Somebody. But you were getting it in. Yeah, yeah. And you were making the cubes. You were getting the no, liquid. No, I was getting it all. But, but I never. By the time I got it, it had turned to paper. So blotter, yeah. So right. blotter was what I, and it was much easier to handle. And what was your experience? You know, because you know, at that time, I think that the acid experience was not hackneyed; it was original. Those were the mm -hmm. original acid experiences. So the you know, we, you know, people who do acid, you know, in the last. 30 or 40 years are basing you know what should happen on mm -hmm. you 
Mm-hmm. So when you took it, the idea was mind expansion, that uh, there would be truth given, and, and it must have been a little nervous. What? What happened? Yeah, I would, you know, I, did it change your perception? I think it had to have. I can't tell you exactly that it did. I know yeah. peyote really, peyote I took before acid. And really? That, that was and, around? And that com- I was in Mexico. And, oh. I, and, and I took the real, the actual cactus. What were you doing in Mexico? Um, I went down there for, I wanted to be a gigolo. I was a failure, but I decided, How old were you? <laughs> I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> I decided I was going to be a gigolo. On the in Mexico. Mexico. <laughs> yeah. An American gigolo, an 18-year-old Jewish kid I from Long Island. Way, I, I completely struck out. <laughs> how, what did you even, I, can't even, I completely I, struck out. How do you even start that? But I did get really lucky. Yeah. Because I had been there once before, and I had met this guy, Rubio, who was a beach boy, and his life was so romantic. He slept on the beach. Women took him to Carlos and Charlie's to eat. They were, in those days in Acapulco, it was uh, mostly school teachers. Wait, on, so did you go there on vacation with your family? No, I went there in school because I would sell. I, I was in the pharmaceutical business, so I got, procured my stuff there. Weed? Yeah, I gave it to my teachers so I didn't have to take tests. You gave weed to your teachers yeah. so you didn't have to take tests, and you went to Mexico from Long Island on the from money Buffalo. that you from yeah, Buffalo yeah. From, with the money you made for buying selling weed to get more weed. <laughs> yeah. So you're running pot to <laughs> Buffalo from Mexico, bribing your teachers. Yeah. So you're ready for show business. I'm ready for show business. <laughs> Here yeah. I come. So the jiggle thing. So you just you met Rubio. But, but really funny because there was a girl about the. I had enough money to to get along. You yeah, know, I had maybe seven eight hundred dollars. But I met. I used to take this peyote, which was horrible tasting. You would cut it up and take, put it back in your tongue, and put it in on a on a uh, raft in yeah. the water in front of the Hilton Hotel. That was my sort of my spot. Okay, so you t- drop peyote yeah. and go sit on the and raft. This, uh, really pretty girl ended yeah. up there one day. Her name was Susan. She was a school teacher from Brooklyn. Uh-huh. We got friendly. We never had a romance. And she ended up buying me every day a big boy hamburger. They had, they had a big boy hamburger stand. I mean, in that, Mexico? Remember that stupid sure. slide? Yeah. Vips. Vips big boy. Yeah. Or Bob's big boy. Bob's big boy. That's right. And uh, years later, Glenn Buxton, the original guitar player in Alice's band, shows up with his new girlfriend at the Fillmore. And it's Susan. That the one, the Brooklyn school teacher who bought you hamburgers? I went out and bought her like a thousand hamburgers to pay for oh, and I had money. How is that possible? But in those days, you couldn't stay in touch with people. There were no cell phones. Yeah. There was no emails. Right. You and had a hard line and, yeah, a, yeah, and, yeah, and was, the snail mail. So I was completely, completely... And she just showed up. Just showed up. It was one of those weird coincidences. Just completely weird. So did you finish college? Finished college. Which went, what degree? I uh, got a Bachelor of Arts, went to the uh, New School for Social Research for a few months. To, to study in what? Uh, didn't know what. Sociology. Didn't know what I was going to do, really. My, my cousin owned a place called Divine Garments. That sold dresses for funerals and and suits for in funerals. in the city. Yeah, uh huh. They had no backs. Uh oh. And um, really, so I worked there for a few months, and every client oh was crying. God. Every client was crying. <laughs> there wasn't one happy client because they were buying for the people. So they'd be referred by the funeral parlor yeah, or the yeah. funeral home to go to the place and pick a dress. And they didn't have to make an emergency run once in a while if the dress or the suit didn't fit. Oh my God! So, uh, back did, door at the funeral parlor. That didn't last long, but it, but a recruiter came in to the new school, looking for candidates for the parole system of California, when Reagan was the governor. Uh huh. And you know they come to schools to pitch people who apply because they need workers. What was the gig? It was to be a probation officer. Um, the sociology. New yeah. Oh, sociology. sociology. Okay. Okay. As a sociologist, could only be a probation officer or a social worker. Right. That was it. That was the that so, was the the job. So path. the states went around. To the schools, no kidding. Yeah, pitching to you know, where are you bright guys who uh, want who have a big heart. Yeah, and uh, I said, you know, that 
this is my moment. I always want to go to California. I'm going to uh, be a probation I'm going to go on a big white horse, save these kids. <laughs> I had long hair. Reagan was a tyrant. Yeah. I come out of the 60s where I thought I could really affect stuff. Yeah. Like I could really go out there. Yeah, and do something. And do something really yeah. cool. And um, went out. Outside of selling acid and weed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We're still selling because I knew it, but anyway. So um, I get there, and it was horrible. I got beat up the first day at the jail, a place called Los Padrinos Juvenile Hall, because it was all Reagan cops. Yeah. And I was a long hair with hair down in my head. Who beat you up, the cops? No, the kids. They put me in a softball game. They had me take the kids out for softball. All the other guards left. So these were not adults. All, all Latino kids. Yeah. Um, not one kid spoke English. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you speak Spanish? Uh, spoke Spanish, but they they were very kind to me. They could have really, you know, when I look back at it, they could have really hurt me. Yeah. And they didn't. They just wanted to teach you a lesson. No, they wanted to do what the guards, I think, made them do, which was get me out of there. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, never discussed, but when I came back in, I looked at the guards and I said, you guys want me out of here, yeah? Why'd they want you out? I had hair down in my ass. And oh, so it was just a, During the uh, Reagan era in California. So you were a hippie. Yeah, they were so embarrassed by me. Uh, just like, so embarrassed, you know. Uh, I was the guy they wanted. Not, right. Not the and kid. you were just sort of basing your, your your ideology on the, you know, the hippies and the, you know, yeah. the guys doing, you know, Jerry Rubin and, yeah, yeah. and Tom Hayden, really Abby Hoffman. Yeah. yeah. Do some good stuff. Right. I mean, live in yeah. the light and really try right. and fight this thing. Okay. So uh, then, so you get your ass kicked at so a I, I juvenile prison. Decide uh, I'm going to go to um, LA, leave the juvenile hall. Okay. I drive down the freeway. I get off at Highland Boulevard. I get off at Highland. There's a motel on Highland Boulevard. The 101. Yeah. You got to drive down the 101. Yeah. Yep. Past the Hollywood Bowl. Mm-hmm. Go into the first motel, too expensive. Mm-hmm. I'm in the right lane. I can't go straight where the track is going. I have to go the right onto Highland. Right. So I take the right onto Highland. I see another vacancy sign. Go in. That I could afford. It was $24, $25 a night. Uh, yeah. That okay. was the Hollywood landmark. So right. I check in now. It's probably 1230. Yeah. I've been beat up. Yeah. I don't have a job. Right. I've just come from a jail. And you got acid. I got acid. I go to my mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. Uh, deck. It's, got, it's, a, it's Hotel California. Yeah. It's two stories around the swimming pool. Sure. Everybody's got a balcony. I go to the balcony. I drop some acid. I hear a girl screaming. I've just come from a jail. I'm like this Jew on a white horse saving yeah. the world. Right. Oh my God, there's a girl getting raped. Da, 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 put on my cape. Yeah. Run down to the pool. Yeah. Separate the two. Yeah. The girl punches me. <laughs> They're making love. <laughs> she happens to be Janice Joplin. Come on. In the morning, I find that she's Janice Joplin. And she's sitting with all these rock icons. Was she like 20? 21? I would say 21, 22, okay. 23 would be my guess. Looked yeah. a little older, had years on her. Old soul. Yeah, old soul, very old soul. So is she sitting at the pool with- She's sitting with the Chambers brothers. Really? And um, Jimi Hendrix, and uh, a guy named Paul Rothschild, who produced The Doors, great producer. Bobby Newworth, who was uh, Bob Dylan's road manager and a folk singer. In yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they were all just hanging out? Yeah. Good. So this was the place? This was sort because of the place, it's yeah. 68, so Hendrix has already made his yeah. break, oh, yeah. right? No, this was sort of the place. Two the, years, couple years in, they're Sort all. of the place. She introduces me. To Jimmy? To the gang. Oh, yeah. Because this is the guy I told you about last night. That I hit. <laughs> Two, I, a, I get embarrassed, but I also think, oh, my God, I have just hit, as a pharmacist, the greatest customer base in the entire world. <laughs> Ka-ching. <laughs> As a, a pharmacist. <laughs> and, you know, would any yeah. of you happen to like... Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, so maybe a, two or three weeks into living there and starting to make some money and do well and get friendly with everyone, they all became customers. Right, but are you tripping with Jimmy? No. 
Who did you Chambers trip? Brothers, yes. Oh, you tripped yeah, to the yeah, Chambers yeah, Brothers. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, it may have been in the place with him, but never yeah. took it with him. Well, you getting high with uh, Janice? I, I, never, I never sold her, and you don't know if she took it or not. Oh, okay. Uh, may have, may not have. She was a boozer. Yeah, her, her road manager, John, lived there with her. And he was very protective of her because she was already spiraling. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah. And and but like, well, that's the other question. I mean, you know, there's a like the story is a good story, but like, you know, there's the dark side of it. Did you feel that at all, or not you at just all. you were just white not light guy? All. Yeah, not at, not at all. I don't think any of us. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is none of us had any thought of consequences for anything. But was there dope around? Were people oh, yeah. shooting dope? I don't know if anyone was shooting. Oh, you didn't see it, huh? Not around you. Yeah. Yeah. But um, no one had consequences. Right, sure. Being drunk was funny. Right. And Uh, fun. Yeah. Sex, there was no HIV. Yeah. So it was free sex everywhere. Sure, but everyone's getting a clap every other week. But then Maddie had pills. Yeah, right. You know, uh, (laughs) A200 and the crabs and ketchup. It's an old school idea. The guys who got you laid in the 60s and 70s are like, yeah, well, you just go to the- You had your road kit. (laughs) Everybody had a road kit. (laughs) With antibiotics and- Yeah, yeah. antibiotics and a- a two hundred, I think what, it was the, called the for, the for the crabs. Yeah, <laughs> um, prepared. Yeah, and um, so one day after a couple of weeks, um, one of them said, Jimi Hendrix or Chambers Brothers said to me and my partner Joey, "You drugged your pharmacist partner." Yeah, we yeah. come from Buffalo with me, but that's all you're doing. Yeah, really. Yeah, that's all okay. we're doing. Okay, and uh, said, uh, "What do you guys do for a living other than that?" And we said nothing. And uh, they said, "You Jewish?" And we said, "Yeah, you should be a manager." <laughs> Makes sense to us. Right. And we had a friend in management who managed at a uh, group called the Left Bank, Walk Away Renee. Yeah. Had been our fraternity brother in college. Huh. And when he got out of college, he got hired at this company. Yeah. That had, so we had a front. We said, yeah, we even have a friend. He'd probably give us cards. Yeah. So and he, he made up little cards for us. Really? And um, they, Alice was living in Lester Chambers' basement. Alice Cooper. Yeah. And uh, Lester came to Alice. Alice says, and said, we found the Jew to manage it. <laughs> <laughs> and off we went. But this was like, you know, in terms of like- This was 69. So you're going in, but not really knowing anything about the music no, business, nothing. not knowing anything about show business. And it's sort of a pivotal time in music and movies and everything. Everything's shifting. The, the business is shifting. So there's a window. There's no real business. Right. Because the whole model had broken apart because the old guys didn't know how to sell not, anymore. Not, you know- I look back at like an Alice poster when we headlined at 72 Madison Square Garden. Yeah. $2.50 ticket was the biggest ticket. Yeah, but but that was the numbers then, wasn't it? That's, I what, mean, I mean, that's what I mean. It wasn't a business. There were no business people in it. What, you, oh, there in were the record tour, companies. In the touring business. Yeah. I get it. I but, get it. But the managers weren't really. So that so the business was primarily, you know, you know, make a big bill so we can sell records. That's it. Was all about selling records, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so you meet Alice, and is he with Frank Zappa at that time recording? Or no, the next week he starts with Frank Zappa. After you signed him, After, did you sign him? Never. We never signed. We still haven't signed. We mm-hmm. agreed to work together. You have no company. You just have a partner. And now the drugs, the dealing, does that secede? Eventually, recede? eventually ends because people started getting arrested. Right. So we stop and we sit down with Alice, my partner, and I, and say, listen, we got to get serious now. But he was a boozer, right? He wasn't he was a, a drug boozer. guy. Never did drugs. Um, he was old school. Yeah, old school boozer. So at that time when you meet Alice and you're getting into management, so because like it seems to me that, because I've never interviewed a manager. I've had many. Mm-hmm. I've had three. Uh, I understand what they do. You know, I understand personal management. But the, 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 the notion of getting into it as a business and then you know what your job is, I think you sort of set some standards. You you sort of invented something. 
yeah. uh, in terms of rock management uh-huh. because Alice Cooper was not an easy sell at the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. So what did you do? You had this guy. What compelled you to to stay with Alice Cooper, who was you know, uh, you know, kind of off the grid in terms of what he wanted to do and how he wanted mm-hmm. to do it. Um, off the grid was great for me because it was a front. Yeah. So I, you know, I we a drug uh, to yeah, protect yeah. you for your drug sales. And right? then when I decided not to do it, we had yeah. to, we got to get serious. And, and we, you know, we Alice is a realist. I'm a realist. We the show was not great. Yeah. Um, it tended to drive people away. What was he doing initially when you saw him? What was the show? They were doing, um, you know, a, a, a minute and a half song would have three hundred changes in it. <laughs> So today, today, mola, 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 mola. Today, 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 today. That's one of the songs yeah. on the album. Right. Uh, so how, you'd had one album out when you met him? Uh, no, nothing. No, no album. So, so you're listening to it in a practice space? No, I go, I go to the uh, Venice to yeah. Bruce Smith, Lenny Bruce Smith. He opens for the doors and empties the room. Lenny? Yeah. Oh, really? Was, Lenny was dead. No, Lenny Bruce Smith used to run at Venice Beach oh, okay. at a place called the Kaleidoscope every year. Yeah. Jim Morrison was headlining it that year. Yeah. Alice went on as an opening act at and that And walked show. the room? Everybody walked out. Before the doors? Yeah. They didn't even wait for the doors? Everybody walked out. The only ones who left in the room were me and Frank Zapper and my partner and three or four other people. <laughs> Did you like Frank? I never really got to know him. He signed them that day. Yeah. Um, and you were the manager. You were there. So you I were was there. Yeah. yeah. That, but that didn't turn he out. Thought, he thought he was signing him to manage him. Oh, and, yeah? And record. Come on. He didn't know that I was going to manage him. Oh, really? Alice told him the next day, oh, by the way, we got a manager between when we talked to you three days ago. <laughs> yeah, and that, that, that relationship wasn't great, right? No. Uh, it, the, the, the record, uh, who well, had the rights got... It was horrible. It was just... It's, um, it's one of those horrible stories in life that you just... It's like, why? What happened? Um, I, I can't tell you 100% what happened. Yeah. Because I don't think we'll ever really know, but the, the facts that we know yeah. are that um, Alice's hero was Frank Zappa. Yeah. And hence the many changes in the songs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And Frank Zappa um, told Alice he had made a label deal yeah. with Warner Brothers Records. Yeah. And he could sign him to two albums. And he signed Alice. Wildman Fisher. Yeah. You could be the only person in the world to know Wildman Fisher. Yeah, I had that record. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mary go, Mary go, Mary go around. <laughs> boop, boop, boop. Had yeah. a picture of his mother stabbing her to right, death on right. the cover. Yeah. Um, I loved Wildman, but, you know, he lived in an insane asylum. Yeah. And wasn't, wasn't a musician. Right. He, did he actually live in an yeah, insane? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the GTOs, who uh-huh. were the girls that, together outrageously, who weren't musicians or singers or writers. They were groupies who were fantastic. Yeah, dressed, like, being dressed like pirates. Uh huh. Um, yeah, they were Miss Cinderella, Miss Christina, Miss. Um, what did they do? They had a stage. They dressed show? like they gave Iggy his look. They gave Bowie the look. They they took Alice to a, a thrift store where the, we bought by the pound ice capade all outfits. Uh-huh. Those are the dresses, metallic dresses. Alice always. They were ice capade outfits. Yeah. So they knew Iggy and they knew Bowie. So Everybody, when these, yeah. so they they were known to like go to, go shopping with them. Every, every, yeah. Make do your makeup, um, cook for you. They were the greatest. Great. Really. Girls. So when the Stooges were out here in the in the late sixties, yeah. early seventies. Ask any of the guys. Ask any of the pop stars of that era about the GTOs, and you get a smile. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were so, really really cool. So they got signed to the label. Uh huh. And um, it was weird because none of them 
including Alice, really had had any audience at all. Yeah. Had anything that anybody liked. We couldn't quite figure it out. So anyway, we show up for the first album. We had never done an album, Alice or I, <clears throat> out at Whitney Studios in Burbank, going to record for Frank Zapper, yeah. Alice's hero. Yeah. And Frank's brother is there. Frank comes in and he says, this is my brother. I'll come back at five and pick up the record. Okay. So we don't know. Really? So they leave. And the no group, producer. Just a, a, and, the, and the group's rehearsing. Uh-huh. They think they're rehearsing. No one ever says stop or start. Or, and huh. Frank comes back at five o'clock and says, great, man, album's done. Really? And that was the first album. Huh. It's, if you listen to it, you will understand it. It's really just uh, like it's a- It's a rehearsal of guys who didn't have songs. Oh, now I got to go back and listen yeah, to yeah. it. Pretty for you. Really? Yeah, it's wild. And and you were like, what the fuck? No, because we didn't know enough. We just thought it was you really- You didn't know we- nothing about that. We thought it was really weird that he that he didn't spend five minutes in the studio, that he never wanted to hear the songs, um, huh. that, that there weren't songs. So now Alice is a little disillusioned, I would Yeah, imagine. not really. So we try and make it, and we're trying to go, and I end up going to Toronto to get him on this John Lennon festival, and I run into David Briggs, who managed Neil Young, mm-hmm. who uh, produced Neil Young. Mm-hmm. And I tell him how he did the album. He says, that's not how you do albums. I said, really? He said, no, no, you actually you write songs, you listen to the songs. You, Shit, would you do that for Alice? And he said, yeah, of course. Yeah. So I didn't even tell the record company we went in with David Briggs. That was the second album. Yeah. Um, and they wouldn't use his tapes. They took the rehearsal tapes from David Briggs, made that easy action. Really? And I, none of us could figure out what the, what's going Who, on. Who, Frank did? Yeah. No, none of us could figure out what's going on. First album sold maybe 300 copies. Yeah. Second album maybe sold 150 copies. Now- I realized that I got to do this without the record company. You got to take it into your own hands. Yeah, I got it. So um, I sit down with Alice and I, who makes the best records? Yeah. Guess who? The group. Oh, really? American Woman. The Guess Who from yeah. Canada. For us, those yeah. were the best radio records you could get. And you have to remember, we're, Alice is a group that doesn't even think about writing music. Uh huh. It's theatrical, it's Salvador Dali. There's no such thing as a three and a half minute song. Right. So we sit down. He's and, an artist. Yeah. Well, we sit down and say, okay, let's forget who you are. How do we get a number one record? What are the best number one records? And who's, who's in, and I don't, please, I manage Burton, so if Burton, if you're listening, don't take this Burton the wrong Cummings. way. Yeah. Who's an insignificant artist? Who's not the Beatles? Who gets number one records all the time? Yeah. Beatles, we get. Rolling yeah, sure, Stone. sure. Guess who? Who are they? Nobody knows who they are. But you weren't managing them yet. No, no. But right. every, every record goes to number one. Right. They got to be some genius involved with this group because they're nobody. It was American Woman, and it was not it was before they had five Return. or six. Of yeah, them. yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. had like five, six gigantic. Yeah, ones. yeah. Um, and I look on the back of the record. It says Jack Richardson. Yeah. Nimbus Nine, Toronto. I get on a plane, go to Toronto. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with my partner, we sit in the office, take some acid, and say we want to meet Jack Richardson. Jack doesn't want to. You know, he's heard, he he's found out we're in the waiting room. They, we said Alice Cooper. He's called Warner Brothers. The last thing he wants to do. Trouble, yeah. yeah. But this new kid comes in, Bob Ezrin, first day of work. And Jack says, go get those kids in the office out of here. That's your first job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we got, we hooked Bob into it. Oh, yeah? You yeah. talked him into it? So we went and we did our first record with Bob. The first track was 18. Really? That's the third Alice Cooper record? That's the first record we do with Bob, is it? Right. And I'm up in Canada doing this John Lennon thing, and I start hearing about Canadian content, that there's a Canadian content rule. 
that Canadian radio stations have to play a certain amount of records and TV stations have to use Canadian product. Uh-huh. Shit, we qualify. Right. <laughs> so I find out who the program director is on the biggest station in Canada, it's CKLW. Yeah. I've, I'm sort of controlling John Lennon at this point. You I, are? Yeah, because I'm doing a festival with him called the Toronto Pop Festival. But was that the it's only the first, re- relationship the first, yeah, you had with him? It's the first one that the Plastic Ono Band ever did. Okay. And um, so I say, listen, I think I'd probably get you the exclusives on the concert, but you got to play this record for me. They play 18, it's a hit. Smash. Phones light up. I called Herbie yeah. to tell him, isn't this fantastic? We got a hit record. He said, get it off the air, I'll sue you immediately. That's a guy at Warner? That's the guy who owns Frank Zappa's label. Right. So I go to Warner's. Yeah. guy named Clyde Bikimo. Uh-huh. I said, Clyde, CKLW, we're the number one record. He said, you're kidding, that's the biggest station in the world for breakout records. Yeah. I said, yeah, we don't have any records pressed. Yeah. I called Herbie, he said he doesn't want us to put the record out. He said, you're kidding me. Who did? I said, Jack Jack Richardson. We've been trying to work with Jack Richardson for three years at Warner's. You know how much money we've offered him? I said, I got it. He stole money from somebody else's recording budget. I yeah. think it was the Doobie Brothers to let us finish. <laughs> yeah. The record goes to number one. Frank Zapper sues Warner Brothers for putting the record out. No shit. Yeah. And to, to stop and to cease the record. I don't want to get too complicated. Yeah. But- what we discovered is that it's basically the producers. Warner Brothers gave Zapper and his manager millions of dollars yeah. to sign three artists, two albums each. Yeah. The only way that Frank, like our first album cost $6,000. Right. Make. The only way Frank would ever have to give us any of those millions of dollars is if, if, we, sold, if we sold a lot of records. Right. Because then we get royalties. Right. If we don't sell any records, he keeps all the money. It's the producers on Broadway. So it was a cash grab. Got it. And all of a sudden, so we went to court. Mm -hmm. The label changed like 12 times on that record, and we ended up in court for five years with straight because we got a number one record. That's amazing. So he he signed these guys that were just freaks. And he's like, fuck it. No, the, these guys are going nowhere. nowhere. And, and I'm going to walk with a few million bucks. <laughs> Fucking show business. Show biz. But you earned, for you, you know, that was a, a pivotal turning point to as a negotiator and as somebody who instinctively knew how to, you know, do a deal, you know, on the fly. Yeah. For you to say, look, I, I, you know, I can set you up with the Lennon Festival, you know, for an exclusive if you play this. And they're like, yeah, and people love that, right? Yeah. And the same with Ezrin, right? Yeah. How'd you charm that guy? Uh, you know, I, I I don't know. It sort of happened, I think, on its own. We took, I got him a ticket to, to New York. Yeah. We played Max's Kansas City. With Alice. With Alice. And um, it sort of was just a magic night, and he sort of got it. Oh, okay. So yeah. it wasn't like that afternoon in yeah. the office. No, no, no. You, you know, really it was his, he was and a don't new- forget, it's his first day on the job. So he's a new guy, yeah. and you're saying, like, we got the next thing. This is the next biggest thing. Yeah. All right. So now you got Alice. You got a hit record. So you're 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 moving. Yeah. And what happens next? Next, I decide I want to see if I had anything to do with it. If any of uh, oh, if if it was yeah. your skill. Yeah. Did, did you actually have a skill did, set? Did I actually have any skill set <laughs> other than taking acid? Yeah. <laughs> so I signed the because I I was up in Canada, um, doing this John Lennon thing. What was your relationship with John? I none mean, at all. No. Um, okay. It was it was. Um, to uh, a fellow who owned the biggest department store in England, Eaton's department store, yeah. got the rights to do this concert with John Lennon. I have no idea why, but he huh. had never done anything. And I did fr- he do the, the yeah. 
and I had a friend who had a friend who thought I was knew what I was doing because I told him I was a manager in Hollywood. Yeah. And, and what was you? So you were a promoter, or what yeah? Were so you? they brought me in as the um, talent coordinator. And was it how? What was John like at that point? He, I didn't really get to meet. Oh, him. really? A little bit. I, I I set him up with a fellow Rabbi Feinberg, uh-huh. and they did the bed in in Montreal. Oh, that was uh, yeah. you. You set him up with that guy. With that guy. How, what, what, what did Feinberg have to do with the uh, bed in? Feinberg was, was he a hippie rabbi? A rabbi was a hippie rabbi who yeah. had who ended up doing an album on Vanguard Records and was looking to promote his album. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I swear. What was that? Was it klezmer music? What the yeah. fuck was it? It was pop music by a rabbi. Oh, hysterical. boy. Everybody's got a dream. Everybody's got so a dream. So he's the one that uh, that helped uh, yeah. Yeah. put together the bed-in yep. as a protest. As a protest. And there's that yeah. famous picture. Yeah. All right, so that's interesting. So, all right, so now you got to see if you have a skill set. So you sign who? Ann Murray. Well, you're really it? trying to challenge yourself. I'm now, challenging myself. But you loved her. I loved the voice. Thought her voice was beautiful. Where'd you hear that? You were in Canada. She I was, was in Canada. A, Can- she, a Canadian star. Yeah, she. I. Um, I remember her. What was her hit? No, she wasn't a Canadian star at that time. She was a um, gym teacher in Nova Scotia, <laughs> and um, she sang this Gene McClellan song. Where'd uh, you hear Snowbird? It? Yeah, and was on a on a summer replacement show. Um, that this fellow David Briggs, who was producing Neil Young, had worked on. In Canada. Yeah, and it became a big hit in Canada and looked like it was about to be a hit in America. Uh-huh. Was just starting to go. And he said, you should, this is another great client, you should you know, get this. And um, I sort of, I said, you know, let me see what I can do. Yeah. And but she was like kind of not conservative, but not, you know, a, a powerhouse of... Uh... She was the opposite of Alice. She was a pure instrument. Uh huh. With no frills and thrills and from a folk tradition, yeah, in a I way? just from a vocalist. Uh huh. Because I remember her from when I was yeah. a kid. What was her big hits? Snowbird. That was it. Yeah. And put your hand in the hand. Oh right. And then she had a Kenny Loggins song. It was very big. So this was 1970, yeah, 71. Yeah, this was uh, 71. So you bring her down here. I bring her down to L.A. We do a big show at uh, New York. At um, and L.A. Central Park and um, but who are you booking her with? What, what is it? You know uh, the who, record. Those days, record companies were very powerful. Yeah, it's a very different thing. The economics yeah. were gigantic. So the fellow named Sir John Reed, who was the chairman of EMI, loved Danny. Uh huh. So he brought people from all over the world in to see her, and I put two shows together. Who was on the shows? Just her, uh, Springsteen, and her in New York. It was Springsteen's first show. It, was he just playing guitar? Do you have the band? He had a band. Um, Yetnikov called me, asked me if I'd put him on the show. He did, I think, 15 minutes to open. How was it? It was weird because it started drizzling and it was outdoors. Uh-huh. So I had to try and get him off. And But did you <laughs> did you see the magic no. there? You didn't? No. But I, I, you know, music's never been my thing. <laughs> right. Uh, just not. Um, so I, I, magic is, uh, I, I don't let that interfere with my music business so, uh-huh um you were just in it that beca- sounds weird i know but but like you know, you but, know. Uh, after alice yeah um and ann murray i took a couple of icons on i took groucho and raquel groucho marx and raquel welsh because as a personal manager yeah just because it was you know, how can you not they asked me to and they asked you to how does groucho find groucho you got as- friendly with alice what yeah they got really friendly they'd watch, where new york in la they'd watch tv together and stuff they just got really uh groucho all the old guys jack benny um, Carson, they all loved Alice because they saw him as vaudeville. Oh, they did. Yeah. So they got it. They got it completely. Like when I, uh, we took George Benny, uh, George Burns to see Alice get hung on stage. And yeah. When Alice came off, <laughs> George said to 
Oh, yeah, I saw uh, Charlie do that in Chicago in 38. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Alice has this weird relationship with these old comedians. Yeah, I come walking into Groucho's house my first time, and Alice is in bed with Groucho, and they're both wearing Mickey Mouse ears that say Groucho. <laughs> And so he's living out here in L.A., and Alice is hanging out with Groucho, yeah. and, and Jack Benny likes him. So you you see these guys. Yeah. You see it, Benny yeah. and all these guys. Yeah. That Alice, must, Alice does much more than me. But, but that must have been a thrill for oh, a Jewish kidding? kid from- How sweaty my armpits got. I started to learn not to wear green shirts. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Always wear black. <laughs> so when Groucho approaches you, you know, imagine- I'm a, I'm a complete groupie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I you got to be yeah. a fan. Yeah. So- you know, yeah, I, I feel that too. Groucho, sometimes. I could never, I couldn't even say anything to him. I try and think of what to say, and I never could get words out. It was, and I'm managing him, and I can't get the words. It's Groucho Marx, oh, right? Geez. So you were Groucho, you were Marx Brothers kid. Oh yeah, my dad. But at at this point, your dad used to love yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. So at this point, what's Groucho doing? Uh, Groucho's doing nothing. Um, to talk, she's popular on the Carson Show and stuff, right? Yeah, not really. He did that album on A and M at Carnegie Hall. The Groucho Files, yeah. But what I did was get the show back on the air. Which one? I helped to get to, You Bet Your Life. You Bet Your Life, yeah. It was all actors. Yeah. So they all were SAG members. Right. So in order to get it back into syndication, they had to give reduced rates. So it was negotiations with the estates uh -huh. to get reduced rates. And no that, kidding. And that's how the show got back on the air. How long did it stay on the air? Not that long. I don't know if How old was he? He was, he was old. He was, he was, it was funny. There was a girl in his life named Erin. Yeah. Erin something. Yeah. And um, when she was in the room, and she was actually the manager. She's the one who hired me. Right. When she was in the room, he was, you know, tall and lucid. When she'd leave the room, he'd get short and oh, really? not too lucid. So that was, so you say, Groucho says, what can you do for me? And you say, well, what what do we got? We're yeah, well, no, it wasn't that. She said that um, we've run out of money for our second shift of nurses. We have to we have to generate some money. To take care of him. Yeah. So I looked at their world and the TV show was, seemed that was, that was possible. Yeah. And what'd you do for Raquel Welch at Raquel, that point? I, Raquel, I put together a song and dance act. Uh-huh. Um, she was, you know, she was very honest with, I really like her a lot. She was, you know, she was raising two children on yeah. her own. And realized that she was a aging sex goddess, yeah, and needed to make a living. Uh huh. And uh, asked, uh, you know, if there was a way to do it. And it seemed an obvious highway that Anne Margaret had developed at that time for Vegas. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, so that's what I did. I put together. Did this, it work? Yeah, worked great. We signed long term at Caesar's Palace. It was the first HBO music special with uh -huh. Ra Raquel Welch live in Vegas. No kidding. Yeah. So you negotiated that too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, it was very funny. Yeah. Michael Fuchs owned, uh, H was running HBO for Time Warner. Right. And it was a very small company. And the only thing that was really working on pay TV was pornography. Yeah. So I would always pitch him an Alice Cooper concert or a Blondie concert yeah. or a Teddy Pendergrass. He said, I just want porn. Or leave me alone. <laughs> Fuchs was yeah. wanting porn. And then, and then I said, what about Raquel in a very low-cut dress? He said, hmm, <laughs> see-through? Yeah. <laughs> right. And that was before, that was at the very beginning, because yeah, yeah. he, he eventually kind of invented the comedy special, yeah. the hour comedy yeah. special, I think, with Robert Klein. Yeah. With Alice, too, how did you elevate, you know, like, the, I know that you talked about it in the film, and I'm sure you do in the book, the, the mythology of Alice and the animals and the chickens and the bite. It, I mean, I guess it's Ozzy who bit the head off a chicken, but what you yeah, Alice it, got the credit for it, yeah. They, we did it at that Toronto festival with John Lennon. Yeah, we threw a chick. I threw a chicken up on stage. Just and I, because? Where'd you get the chicken? It was a feral chicken that was just running backstage. Really? Yeah, a feral chicken yeah. in Toronto. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. There was 
five or six of them back there. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And you just threw one on stage? Yeah, I threw it on stage. We were using feathers at the end of the show. We used to rip open a feather pillow and uh-huh. put CO2 on it, mm-hmm. and it made like snow. Uh-huh. Um, right. So then they the got light. a chicken, and what happened? He threw it out to the audience, and the audience ripped it apart, and the next day the paper said that Alice bit the head off of the chicken. And that was, and you were like, this is the best the thing. The best that- thing that's ever happened to us ever. We had the ASPCA at every show. <laughs> we had mayors. <laughs> We had everybody bitching, and he just milked it. We milked it. We still milk it. Yeah, <laughs> and he uh, and his stage show got more ornate and more kind of macabre, right? Uh-huh. Yep, yeah. More. I think you know he became better at what he did as a showman. As a showman, we became better storytellers. Uh-huh. Uh huh. As writers, Billion Dollar Babies was a big record, mm-hmm. right? That wasn't, and then uh, School Down was a big record. Billion Dollar Babies a big record. Killer. Yeah. Killer was a big one. I just like, you know, what you're saying to me is interesting because I, I was at, I talked to him briefly. Maybe I even saw you. Did you, were you ever at Conan with him when he did the, uh, he had the cane? So. You know, he had, he did the top hat oh, thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and I talked to him and because I, yeah, I think we had talked about doing one of these before and I just met him briefly, but you know, the whole sort of like, you know, kind of vaudevillian, you know, he's got the hot top hat and yeah. the cane, like, you know, he's sort of aging into this. Uh-huh. You know, he, it was a very self-aware thing he was doing. Yeah. You know, like, at the, I mean, how old is he? Your age, right? He's 70. Yeah. 69. So, yeah, so, like, you know, he's got, you know, he's sort of like, I'm the song and dance man. Oh, yeah. 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 I like those dudes because I feel like that way with Dylan, too. I, I really think that as Dylan is just going to sort of, like, die in a hotel on the road somewhere because he doesn't want to get off the road. Yeah, it's wild. It is. Yeah. But it, there is this sort of, like, I'm a troubadour. I'm a song Alice and dance man. Alice is that man. way, too. Alice told me the other day we were talking and he said, you know, the only time that I'm really comfortable where I know exactly what I'm doing yeah. is the hour and a half when I'm on stage. Right. That's the time. He said, for me, that's almost like meditating. I, I can hear, I can see that. Yeah. It's because you're completely present. Yeah. It's your, it's your, you have complete control of the environment. Yeah. It's your world. It's his world. He said he loves that moment. And you made Anne Murray a star. How? Um, I mean, she was really good, so, and, and good techniques, but also I got her in a, a picture with John Lennon and... Harry Nielsen and Alice Cooper and Mickey Dolan at a time when she needed to be made contemporary. Oh, she, right. She could have dropped one way or the other. Right. You know, she could have. Got to make her hip. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we had to make her hip. And that opened up the door to Midnight Special and Rolling Stone. And all those shows, all huh? All those shows. And so what's Hollywood like at that time? What are you hanging out at the Troubadour? Dan Tanner's? No, not so much. Dan Tanner's a little bit. Yeah. A place called Roy's. Uh-huh. Which is where the House of Blues is now. Oh yeah, Roy well that's gone now too. Across from the Comedy yeah. Store, um, Rainbow Gigantic. Sure. Well, so that was the beginning yeah. of the Rainbow. Yeah, on the uh, up, right upstairs, up in the Rainbow, there was the uh, Vampire Lounge. You know where Alice and John Lennon and Harry hung out. Oh really? And they were there so the every Rainbow night. was that along that? Uh, yeah. yeah, they were there every night. They were there every single night. And who were the club owners then that you must have had a uh, Mario and Elmer still? Yeah, same owners. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mario's still around. He's still there, 92, 93. They were um, policemen from Chicago, supposedly Capone's bag men. Uh-huh. Big cigars. A so kid. So they were connected guys. Yeah. yeah. There was, was there a lot of that here? Not a lot. Because it didn't, yeah. doesn't feel not, like that. Not, it doesn't feel like New York or yeah, Chicago. Not, wasn't really part of it. Right, right. These were just great characters. I don't right. know if they were connected or not. Sure, so you can be whatever Always character you want. Always munching on a cigar. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. they were great to everybody. They fed us and... They really took care of everybody. They did. I mean, when I was the doorman at the comedy store in the '80s, you know, the the Rainbow was still pretty much like a place where you could go eat. Yeah. In a way, like that pasta. Yeah. 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 
I used to go up there with Kennison sometimes. He used to hold court up there. It kind of held its own as the metal place, uh-huh. you know, the hard rock yeah, still, place. I mean, it still does. Yeah. yeah. Lemmy was there every day. But then you get involved with uh, R&B acts. Yeah, I loved uh, my passion in music is R&B. Teddy Pendergrass, uh, Wake Up Everybody, Harold Melvin. That was sort of my song. Yeah. And also it was, you know, it, it really fit my uh, writing in on the white horse the jew on the white horse uh-huh. to save the day civil rights guy yeah, yeah uh-huh yeah, sort of hit you that. wanted justice for the black entertainer absolutely yeah and for did everybody. you have to fight some fights for that yeah it's been pretty good it came uh, it was uh, well how'd you meet teddy met teddy through um goddard lieberson who was the head of cbs yeah the executor of um gradual marx's estate it's weird how everyone's connected yeah. you, how uh, you know how does he's got yeah. a friend who knows what yeah. teddy was Teddy a nobody at that point? Or? No, Teddy had just, uh, Howard Melvin was gigantic. Mm-hmm. Teddy had, after, what I, what I was saying before is that after um, I went through my Ann Murray thing with Alice and mm-hmm. did my, gra- then I decided, you know, now that I know I sort of know what to do, mm-hmm. I only want to deal with artists who also know what to do. They have so a vision for themselves? That, that have been vetted already. Mm-hmm. That have been successful. Right. And still survive. Mm-hmm. You didn't want to start anyone out. Right. So I, my criteria was a number one record. Right. Um, That's uh, what you wanted? Yeah. I, I, or else I wouldn't. With someone who was seasoned. Yeah. Who, who had been vetted, who sort of could take the heat. Right. And uh, Teddy was that guy? Teddy was the first one. Yeah. And did you get <clears> your number one record? Yeah. He had number one when I went to see him. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, it was his first solo record. And I went to see him as a manager, and there was like every Jewish manager in the world waiting for him. And so I just left. I never, I never went after signing anyone. I, yeah, they'd always call me. Yeah. So I didn't go, and then he called me and asked me how it went. And I told him that you know he, there were plenty of competent managers waiting to see him. That he'd be okay. Yeah. They, he said, No, no, I, I this is an important asset to me. I think it can be really long term, and I know you'll extend the career. And please go meet him. Oh yeah. So um, I had to go back down, and I decided I was going down. I'm going to be make sure that this is the last time I have to go see him. Yeah. And I was pretty outrageous. I mean, there was a ring of truth in it, but I, I went up to his apartment and I said, listen, man, uh, sorry to take up your time. Um, there's very few things that I'm sure of in life. Yeah. One of the things I'm sure of is that you have no idea how to differentiate between seven great Jewish managers telling you what they're going to do for you. <laughs> there's no way. So I don't want to be the eighth. Right. So here's what I know. Um, I can get higher than you. Yeah. I can get drunker than you. I got more beautiful women than you. And when you collapse and there's cash in your pocket, I'll be there to take the cash out and make sure nobody steals it. (laughs) And he just looked at me like I was, and I expected he'd throw me out of the place. Right. And he said, okay, when are we meeting? And I was like, oh, shit. So we actually met two weeks later in New York in a two-bedroom suite. Yeah. And he went at it. Why did we go at it? (laughs) And uh, I, I managed him till he died. <laughs> and I, I actually never would have told the story. Yeah. Except in his biography, which blew my mind, because Teddy was the proudest man I've ever met. I love Teddy. Yeah. Teddy, and Teddy was like, I, I can't even describe how close I became to him. Um, but in the book, he talks about how this little white kid from Jewish kid from Oceanside yeah. <laughs> smoked and drank and, you know, <laughs> under the table. <laughs> that was you. That was me. <laughs> he might as well own it. You know, you brought him through another couple hit records. I brought him through a bunch of hit records. The thing that we did, uh, I think both of us were proudest of, is that what I didn't realize is that 
black artists were really being treated differently than white artists. There was uh-huh. a thing called the Chitlin Circuit. Yeah, sure. And um, it really it really existed. It was a real thing. Yeah, there's comics too. Real, yeah, mm-hmm. with real people and mm-hmm. real guns and mm-hmm. real consequences, and um, we broke it. But we, you know, his last manager got shot to death. What do you mean you broke it? Like you, you, we broke you, it. Yeah. And which means what? Which means there's no more Chitlin Circuit. Oh. So they had a hold on the black audience, yeah. and they had a, a monopoly on the venue. They had what they had is a monopoly on the black artists who were successful. Um, so if you were a Teddy and you came into uh, Baton Rouge, yeah, as a white artist, you, yeah, you would make your choice of who promoted your show based right. based on how much money someone gave you, yeah, and how professionally they were in doing the show, uh-huh. and the production value they could give to your audience to make you look good, yeah. In the Chitlin circuit, if you went to Baton Rouge, you had to deal with one promoter. He paid you whatever he wanted to pay you. If he paid you. If he paid you. And yeah. he provided whatever services he felt like providing you. You didn't send the rider. Right. You got what he wanted to give you. So my first date with Teddy, where I didn't know this existed, these people from the Holiday Inn showed up with a Shure microphone system in an 8,000-seat hall. For you that don't know, I mean, a Shure microphone system system is something you use for maybe 150 people. Uh-huh. This was eight. And they said, we got to have it back in an hour and 10 minutes. We're back on again at the Holiday Inn. And we had 7,000 people in the hall. So this was a, pro- a guy, a promoter or who, a gangster who, who, who rented, got some friends. Yeah, who rented the, the yeah. system for an hour right. and a half. Um, and we didn't get paid. And, and, when, and when I went to Teddy, he wasn't surprised. So how'd you get the money? We didn't. Oh. Yeah. I Did mean, you ever have to fight for money? Didn't I, you? I, I got a ring from the guy. That's as good as I could do. <laughs> but Teddy, you know, didn't affect him at all. I said, I, you know, can't do business. I can't, I can't do this. This is not what I do. So I can leave, or we can break it. So how and that's you when he it? told me his last manager got shot to death. I said, nice time, very nice time for you to pick to tell me. <laughs> 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 Thanks a lot, pal. So how'd you break it? Um, we did some shows for white promoters. They picketed it. Yeah, we did Radio City. Who Music, picketed it? Uh, the Black Promoters Association. It was. They were very organized. The Chitlin Circuit was very organized. Uh-huh. Um, so the Black Promoters Association picketed. Um, promoters picketed. Knowing that they were treating artists badly. They didn't think they were because they were getting hit records. They had their rented Cadillacs. Yeah, but you just said you didn't get paid. It's all in the eye of the perceiver. He's, okay. He's, you know, it's not like... He's saying it cost us this much. Exactly. Right. Yeah, so it's... Um, it's all questionable stuff. So once you had success with the right promoters and they... So what happened is we got we, we did the shows, we got picketed, it got pretty heavy. Yeah. People show up at my office. I had a couple of had some incidents happen. What? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> things you don't like to talk about. Yeah. Because people are still alive. Uh-huh, right. Um, and we finally made a deal. And they saw I was serious. Um, and I was having some other acts sort of jumping aboard Earth when the fire then went and booked the with a white promoter a show. You bro- oh, so you made that possible. I didn't do it, but I saw they did it. So their system was starting to crumble. Right. So they came in and we talked story and they tried to get very heavy with me. And I, I basically said, listen, what you see is me. My mother's dead. My father's dead. I don't have kids. I don't have a wife. Um, I don't even have a mortgage. Yeah. The, I, I could buy you the bullet. Please put it in my brain. Yeah. Because I got nobody who loves me. All I do is work. I'm a miserable fucking guy, <laughs> and I'll pay you to kill me. So if that's really what you want to do, let's do it. And get a, if you want to do some business, I'm happy to do that. And uh, 
Like, what is the unique approach? Please. Yeah, just kill me. Kill me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we worked at a deal, and the deal, uh, which they were very honorable to, and I was very honorable to, was that if um, if a building was owned by an institution like the Greek Theater, yeah. was owned by the by the city, yeah, um, Radio City was owned by someone, yeah, um, then that promoter had the right to do the show. And we would force them to give a percentage of the show um, to uh, the promote the Black Promoters Association. Right. If it was an open promotion, yeah, we would use our promoters and force them to be fifty fifty partners with the Black Promoters Association. Yeah. So they kept their money. Yeah. They kept their um, pride because their name went on it. Yeah. We got to deal with people who paid us. Yeah. And provided the services we need. And and it probably uh, sort of uh, tempered the unorthodox uh, cowboys. Right. Nobody was were, nobody was thrilled, but everybody was making a lot of money. Right. That were but yeah, and it probably pushed some of those guys back who were basically pimps for show business. Correct. Right. Yeah. Oh, good. And right. I stayed very friendly with most of the black promoters. Yeah. I mean, still to this day. Yeah. We actually worked it out as gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was really impressed with the way they stuck to their word, and and, and we were able to really make. The, nobody got hurt. Yeah. The artists got everything they should have gotten. Right. The two promoters who were basically promoters for the most part have to be criminals to make money. Yeah. Because the artist squeezes them so hard that if they're artists, they can't make anything. Yeah. So they each took half of their what they steal. Right. <laughs> so it was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, and what other black acts did you work with? Uh, Luther Vandross, Stephanie Mills, Ben Vereen. Rick James. Um, As a manager? Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. I went into an African period where I just loved Magic Feshi, King Sonny a day. Did you do that first, the the big attempt at the American record with yeah. King Sonny a day? Yeah, I tried. I the, tried hard. What was it called, Juju Pop? Yeah. Yeah, I remember. I, I tried really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't take. Couldn't get it across. One of, my, uh, one of my times I wasn't too happy about my job. I just could not get, I couldn't get anybody to buy in. Yeah. Only colleges. Yeah. The only people who would buy in. Uh, but he was a beautiful man, really elegant, beautiful man. And then stuff like Gypsy Kings, which were- Sure. You know, this you did that? Yeah. Wow. So at this point, you know, do you have a big operation? Yeah. I have about 60 people, maybe. I'm doing a lot of movies. A lot of- I, I always wanted to- um, What's a manager's involvement in a movie? Because how, how did that structure? How were those deals structured? Well, it's different. I had a film company called Island Alive. Uh-huh. So we were the first independent. For me, making movies was like everything else. It was protecting the artist. Right. So I did six Alan Rudolph movies. I did. Oh, uh, those are interesting movies. Yeah, Choose Me, Trouble in Mind. Those are di- those are kind of difficult movies. Yeah. We did Koyana Scotsy. We did uh, El Norte. We did Stop Making Sense. So these are the that was really pre-independent film, independent we were the first, movies. We were the first. In the, we distributed, financed, and produced. We were the first independent film company in America. Was Island Alive, but that was not related to Island Records. Yeah, there was a, a joint venture of Chris Blackwell and myself. Uh huh. Um, you did stop making sense. Yeah, that was a big movie. Yeah. None of them were big. None of them did over. I think our biggest movie was Kiss of the Spider Woman. Did maybe four million dollars. Now, really? Yeah. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Because they're challenging movies. Yeah. Not stop yeah. making and sense. And they were the Alan Rudolph. You have to remember there were no art theaters. I remember seeing Choose Me in college at yeah. the at the yeah. at the Nickelodeon in Boston, like at an art theater. Great movie. It is a good 890000 dollars. David Carradine, right? Yeah, uh, Keith Carradine. Keith Carradine, right. Catered Keith. it out of my truck. Really? Yeah, so you're on set? And Teddy on the soundtrack. It's a really interesting story. 
of how that move, why that movie exists, uh-huh. and why Teddy's on the soundtrack. Huh. This was all. That movie was five years of work to get Teddy money after his accident. And one thing led to another. One coupon led to the next coupon, which led to... And the last coupon was Alan Rudolph calling me up and two years after he had written written this script for me of a thing called Choose Me. Luther wrote the song. We needed to make believe Teddy was going to do a soundtrack. We all thought he was going to die. But I had someone who would give him a million dollars for his family if we could pretend he was going to do a soundtrack. Uh-huh. So I went to Luther and asked him to sing a song making himself sound like Teddy. Really? Yeah, and he, he wrote Choose Me and made himself sound like Teddy on it. I went to Alan Rudolph with the song, and I said, you need to write me a script of a movie that will never get made, but I have to put in a file somewhere to protect this guy who's going to give me a million dollars for Teddy, who needs it. Yeah. Um, so Alan wrote the script. Luther did the song. About a year and a half later, Alan Rudolph called me up. And he said, hey, Shep, I need a favor. I said, anything for you, Alan, anything. He said, I want to make the movie. <laughs> I said, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and I had just won the Cannes Film Festival with The Duelist, which was my first movie, Ridley Scott's first movie. Yeah. As a live film. Yeah. And I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, mate, you told me I got a coupon I want to make. So I called Chris Blackwell, who had a reputation for being a very bad guy. Yeah. And I said, I know you're the devil. I know you've always wanted to be in business with me. Give me a million bucks to do this movie um, that you will not get the soundtrack to because I sold it already, yeah. and he had a record company. Yeah. And that's how we formed Island Alive. That was the beginning. <laughs> but deal with the devil. Deal with the devil. Now, Alan Rudolph was, was Altman's protege, right? He was Altman's protege. We had done, um, he did all my music videos for me. I loved, um, I wanted my artists to always be the first to use new technology. Yeah. So we did f- music videos before MTV. Alan did them for us. We did um, video albums before there were discs with Blondie. Mm-hmm. We did the first HBO special with Raquel. Whenever there was a new technology. Okay. Alan did it for you? Uh, Alan didn't do that one. That was another guy. But Alan did almost all of our stuff. Directing and then, them. And then we did a fabulous documentary um, with G. Gordon Liddy and Timothy Leary. Yeah, yeah, when Called they were re- touring. Yeah, Return Engagement. We put them on tour and filmed the tour. Oh, you did? You created that tour? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> then we took it to Con. Oh my God! We presented it in Con. Did was... you know? Did, were you friends with Leary before? No, no, no. Alan's the one who brought the project in, and we all loved Alan for doing the videos for us. So yeah, yeah. Oh my God! That's hilarious. <laughs> and the duelist you did that with Ridley Scott. Yeah, that was our first movie. Now, when Teddy, I imagine when Teddy had the accident, that was a, a tremendous turning point yeah. for you personally. Yeah. Like what? 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 What did you change about your life? Um, because you you ended up ha- having yeah, problems eventually, right? I think that um, it definitely put a damper on what I did for a living. Took a lot of the joy out of what I did for a living. I started seeing the endings instead of the beginnings and the middles uh-huh. when I'd work on a on an artist and a project. Yeah. Um. So that part. Um. Also, having a friend go that way was just quadriplegic. Yeah, not able to stop him. He did it to himself. And I, what was he? She, well, he was drunk. And yeah, he cracked two or three cars up that week, and you know, just um, so he was spiraling, and he yeah, couldn't stop. And him. I just couldn't stop him. Um, and, and everything it, and, was going good for him. Yeah. Oh. Isn't that something? Yeah. 
Well, what do you what did you learn in like you know looking at the because I know I, I we can talk about how you built this relationship with Mike Myers and when you became this sort of like different uh, force you know for for people like what what did you learn about artists that that you know that that from that frustration of not being able to yeah, I don't know if I learned so much about it from that from that what I, I mean one of the things that that um, I always knew about artists is yeah. That, it's usually their drive is usually driven by holes rather than strengths that it's usually um fear of that drives them on really yeah i i don't think i have any friend who isn't successful who's an actor who's over 40 or 50 who really thinks he's never going to get another role right and really thinks it mm-hmm. um, fear drives them on and i think Part of that is, um, but it can't be desperation. Not desperation, but right, fear. Right, living in that fear zone. Uh huh. So that it becomes all encompassing. Right, the and time. then there's the fear of failure and, and the fear, fear of not. And, and what I try and say in my talks with everyone is that my biggest takeaway from everything I've done in 40 years of doing is that you're going to die. You're going to die. Everybody's going to die. So go for it. Don't be scared. Right. What ha- you fail. <laughs> Whether you fail or you win, you're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> you're dying. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a morbid way. Yeah, I know. But you know what? You know, yeah, no, of course. So, so well, that's the one thing that, that's the biggest fear is accepting that. Yeah. So yeah. you're saying, you know, accept this. And then all the rest of it's easy. Yeah, put it into perspective. Yeah, put it in perspective. So, uh-huh. and, that, and, you know, don't be that person whose head is on the pillow in the last 24 hours saying, I wish I had, oh, I should have, I wish I had done, I, it doesn't matter. You're going to die. Uh huh. Do what you want to do. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and um, that's a, that's what I used to really try and drain into all my artists. You know, the mo- I used to tell all my artists when I started with them, the most important thing in our relationship is not how much you pay me, but you're giving me the ability to fail. I have to be able to fail. And same thing with you. If That's your pitch? That's as good as the uh, yeah. kill me pitch. Yeah, you got to be able to, but you have to be able to fail. Right. Or I can't do anything good. So, the, And also puts you in a position not to be a fucking liar. Exactly. Right. But it's being honest right. right at the beginning. Yeah. You know, I don't do contracts. Yeah. Um, I, I try and be really honest. I don't, if you're not happy with me or I'm not happy with you, we shouldn't be working together. That's you have to call a lawyer. Yeah, no lawsuits. Right, yeah, right. You just call the guy. Call. I'm your friend. Call yeah. me up and say, you know, it's just not working for me anymore. Yeah. And what actors did you, you know, work with? Didn't work with any actors. Right. Never really. Um, Mostly music and movies. Yeah. So it was music and yeah. film production. Yeah. Really. Yeah. So how do you build this relationship with Mike to the point Mike where he came, makes a movie? About yeah. No, you? Mike was amazing. Mike. Um, Mike Myers. Mike was one of those moments. You know, I, I, um, I always in my business tried to be brutally honest. Um, even to sort of a floor. Yeah. Um, and I used to always tell my artists, you know, if you want to know, I can get you to know in a second. Right. You want a yes? I can never tell you how long it's going to take. Right, right. But I'll, I'll stay on it till it's a yes. <laughs> um, so we got this call to do Wayne's World. Okay. The call came in about two months before the, the actual filming date for Alice to do. Oh, it was a music thing. Yeah, to do yeah. a music thing. Uh, act in it for about 11 seconds. Yeah. And then the end credit song with School's Out. Yeah. But it was School's Out in both places. Yeah. So I asked if we could do our new song, because in those days, soundtracks were very significant at radio. Right. If you could go to radio with a soundtrack record, you had a good chance of getting a hit. And um, Really? Yeah. It was, you know, it was um, Saturday Night Fever. Sure. It was enormous, all, um, 
Rockies and uh, all those. And even if it wasn't a hit, you're on the record, so you get the you get the. You, but you know. you, 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 radio plays it, right? That's the hardest. Got thing it. Yeah. Got. At least you get a chance to see. So, um, I said to Alice, I said, you know, they won't let us do the new songs. We got two choices: we can either just agree to do schools out, or I can fuck them over, um, which I think is the thing to do. I don't think they'll have time to replace you, but you may be put out of the movie. If I tell them the truth now, they'll get someone else. Um, I'll take the heat. I'll go in the end. You know, I said, but he said, do whatever you think is right. So I went to bed. Was he willing to lose it? Yeah. He couldn't care less. Yeah, right. He doesn't care. <laughs> he doesn't have a phone. That's, that's the best position, isn't yeah, it? Couldn't care less. That's what I mean about failure. Never ever once has he ever. Right. I rarely even tell him. Right. He doesn't have a phone. He doesn't have a computer. He doesn't care. He lets me. Yeah. You know, plays golf. Yeah. Plays golf. So um, about a week before the movie, I asked for a meeting with Mike. Um, and I go in to see him, and I said, listen, I, I don't want to be that Hollywood guy. Yeah. Um, I said, but I, I do want you to know I lied to your production people. Um, we're not going to do this. We're not going to let you use that song. Yeah. Or Alice, unless you give us the new song. And he said, absolutely not. I told you not. I said, listen, just listen to me. So he's in the movie 11 seconds. No one's going to know what he plays. Yeah. Let him do the new song for 11 seconds, and I'll let you put schools out on the end credits, which is what you really care about. And we made the deal. So we got our song in the thing. And then about- Did it was, work? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Worked great. I, I, the record wasn't a hit, but it got us into the 20s. Yeah. It wouldn't have gone anywhere if right, it hadn't right. been in the movie. The new song. And he got schooled out and he was yeah. happy. Yeah. And then I heard about a year and a half later that he was in Maui at the for, at a hotel right Mike there. was. Yeah. So I got a hold of him and invited him down for actually for a ridiculous luau with- uh, with Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger and I think Whoopi Goldberg. Now these were, these because I remember that in the movie, so you moved away from L.A. and yeah. you moved to Maui yeah. and that's where you live. Yeah. Still. Yeah. And you just liked having people over. Yeah, I enjoy cooking and entertaining. So you fly people down? No. They, they fly whoever, down. Yeah, who's You invite, there? you know, oh, yeah. whoever's around. This is, I think, a Planet Hollywood opening. Okay, so in just, Maui. So yeah. you said, come so, over. Yeah, I do right. parties for everything. All right, so, the, okay, uh, so he's in Maui. So he doesn't believe me, but he comes over and they're all there. And they all leave, and he's sitting, and he's like, I see he's not in a, he's just not comfortable. Yeah. And we talk, and his father had just passed away, I oh, think. Yeah. So anyway, I said, you know, my guest house is free. Come hang out for a few days. And he ended up staying a couple of months, and um, we had a really nice time, and um, I channeled my grandmother a lot and yeah. fed him. Uh-huh. And uh, we talked a bunch, and I would tell him stories. And then he started coming to Maui. He, he bought a house with his uh, wife that they shared with Helen Hunt. Mm -hmm. So they used to come a bit, and then they got divorced. When they got divorced, he came and started to stay with me again. But when we got, he started coming regularly enough that we got into this rhythm where he'd come, I'd cook dinner, and I'd tell him stories. Right. And then he started coming to the house with names on his hand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to ask you about? <laughs> <laughs> so we sit down for dinner. He'd go, okay, Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. Did <laughs> and, you have one? And i go, uh, yeah, it was amazing. We... Um, Charlie and Groucho, I got together at the Savoy Hotel for tea one morning. Yeah. And it was just, and then he goes, Albert Finney. And I go to my, but I never missed the story. There was never one person. Really? Never one, just the ones he happened to pick. Even if it was just a there quick thing. There was one thing. or two I lied about. Oh, yeah. Just to keep it going. <laughs> but, there was, uh, but there was never one. And, he, and he, somewhere in this process, he would say to me, you got to let me record these stories. you got to let me put these stories. You're not going to live forever, you, you know, if nothing else for your kids. And I just, you know, having seen what fame has done to so many people that I love, um, no reason for me to flirt with it. 
Yeah. I didn't see any reason for me to challenge myself as to how I would deal with fame. Would I deal with it better than other people? Like what happened if the movie was actually a hit? Am the I, uh, documentary. Yeah, am I now going to turn into to a drug addict and an alcoholic and kill myself? That's really a fear? Yeah. yeah. yeah you don't trust yourself enough? Fame is, I, I mean, I've seen stronger people than me who can't just can't survive fame. What What is it about it? I can't, I can't tell you exactly. I think for the most of the people I deal with, it's um, because they were live performers. They, they, they fought so hard to yeah. get people applauding for yeah. them, usually for some reason other than the applause. They're thinking it's going to fill up something, maybe something with their parents, something, some self-worth issue. Oh, so, right. And it doesn't fill it up. Right, so they got everything and they still feel like yeah, shit. Yeah. And then, then it's like, what now? And then it, that, that's when it moves to rehab, and that's when. It's well, the, yeah, because yeah. now you have all the resources to do whatever the fuck you, you want, want to do, and you're not happy. And the hole's not that's, filled. Right. So I just there was no reason for me to flirt with it, and I had never <laughs> been to a psychiatrist. <laughs> I never dealt with any of that stuff. I I knew I was as fucked up as anybody else on the. Yeah, planet. you're not. You don't have kids. Yeah, uh, but but I'm pretty happy. So right, why mess No, around? I don't have them either. Yeah, hey, and you're not married. Not married now. I was married, got divorced. Got married at 60, divorced at 64. Yeah. Um, seeing a nice lady now, really enjoying my relationship. Oh, but, right. But, but um, just didn't see any reason whatsoever to deal with it at all. There was, other than ego. And I didn't want to succumb to just doing something for ego. And so um, I kept saying no to Mike. And then I ended up having a surgery. And um, not knowing, I flatlined twice at the surgery. What the fuck? What happened? What, yeah, happened? what just, kind of surgery? Just something. It's, you know, these are these are like cars. They go Bodies? sometimes. You know? Yeah. So, um, but you, when I woke up, I was in a hotel room by myself, um, feeling very sorry for myself. Like, after the surgery? Yeah, yeah. Like, I probably had been awake an hour. In a hotel room? No, in a hospital, hospital room. Man. Yeah. My secretary there. Yeah. None of my adopted kids happened to be there. No woman in my life. You have adopted kids? Yeah, four. Uh-huh. Uh, well, great. Um, and um, started really feeling sorry for myself. Uh-huh. You know, like, uh, and he called. He said, okay, now? <laughs> 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 I, I said yes really fast. Yeah. Thinking about, uh, you know, the ego side of it. I mean, that's really why I answered it was to leave. Well, if I live through this, at least I'll leave something behind for, you know. Stuff. Yeah, and um, the ego. Like when you talk about ego, do you have a spiritual disposition? Um, I'm very thankful all the time. I don't. I, I. I don't attach it to any one thing. You never tried Jew, no, no. Buddha, nothing, no. no, no. But always, I've been, I've been, um, I've, I've taken as a sort of a principle in my life that there's something bigger than me that's in charge of this whole thing. Uh-huh. And then I'm never going to figure out who it is uh-huh. or what it is. Yeah. Um, so I don't dwell even on that. I just dwell on doing the best I can possibly do on this life. And uh, so so I, I go to I go to temple for the holidays, but I don't right. read the, the book. Right. I'll go to mass with my kids. Yeah. I appreciate the ritual of all of them. Why do your kids go to mass? Uh, they were all Catholic. So How'd you end up with a bunch of Catholic I, kids? I adopted four Afro-American kids. Oh, okay. Family, so. Okay. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you adopted them as uh, they were already what? How old? Uh, baby was two weeks. Really? Uh, so, but, how, but their grandmother and great grandmother raised them. Their mother, their mother is the one who. Died. The mother had died, and fathers were sort of unknown. Well, how did how did you end up with? I, I I had uh, their mother 
I lived with their grandmother for about four years and their mother for four years. In a years. romantic relationship? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then I lost track of them for 10 or 15 years and, and then you, what, heard that the daughter died. Oh, geez. And when I went, there were four little kids at the uh, funeral and no, nobody didn't take care of them. So you just stepped in? Yeah, I just sort of smoked a joint, went to the car, said, what is the, uh, is this the moment? <laughs> come come with me. <laughs> <laughs> so you legally adopted him? And no, you, no, I never, I never legally adopted him. But you I just took care. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. That's, uh, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, three of them are back in uh, Maui with me now. And, um, doing all right? Everyone's all right? Yeah, for the most part. Um, for the most part, doing really well. It's been it's great to have them home. Um, two new ones, two little babies, a four-year-old and a three-year-old who are just so precious. And they all live with you? Uh, no, the three of them are living on Maui. One lives with me in Maui, but she works with Alice on the road doing uh -huh. VIP ticketing. Uh -huh. And one has a, her and her husband have a tattoo parlor in Lahaina. And um, one's living up country with their baby. And then one's in my, the house that I had originally got for them in New York. Oh, wow. When we first started with their baby. It's a big life. In a, a way. Life. So when did you be, like, before we end up, I, I did, you know, I, I, it seems to me that you're responsible for um, the uh, the celebrity chef uh -huh. reality. For me, that was just a really wonderful part of my life. I, my passion is the culinary arts. Um, I found out late in my life where I don't really have that passion for music yeah. or for movies. Mm -hmm. um, I... If I, I don't have a stereo at the house, if, if I didn't see another movie, I'd be fine. If I didn't cook a meal, <laughs> I'd go crazy. Uh -huh. um, it really caused You me. always cooked. Yeah. No, I met, I, I got lucky enough um, when I won the Cannes Film Festival to meet a chef who um, sort of taught me in his way how to be happy. I, I was really at risk. I was- What, at a hotel or what? It was at a restaurant. I got, yeah. I got taken to a restaurant called the Moulin des Moujans. Uh-huh. When I won the uh, with the duelist and um, met this wonderful chef who was very successful and very happy, uh huh, it was really obvious he was happy. And you you sensed that, and I sensed both that, and I sensed that in me I was headed for trouble. Hmm. I was um, too much drugs, too many beautiful women, too successful. Poor you, just yeah. But but you know all the stuff, <laughs> I know, I know. all the fool's gold. Sure, sure, but, okay, but yeah, but uh, I could hear a voice in me. Is empty. Yeah, and I was seeing people getting hurt. You know, the Hendrixes were dead. The Joplins were dead. Consequences started. Yeah, coming, yeah. The, right. You know, and I could see I was on that train, and, and I just, when I saw him, I said, he can save my life. Uh-huh. And he did. Um, you know, but what, not because he consciously did, he just did, and I became his grasshopper for 25 years. And um, How do you start a relationship like that? <laughs> very weird. <laughs> I wait. I saw her come into the room. I, yeah. I made up my mind that moment. I thought about kung fu, uh -huh. the grasshopper and the old man. Literally, yeah. And I waited till after service, and I went over to him and I said that uh, I would like to be his grasshopper. And he didn't speak much English. He had no idea what I was talking about. Right. And uh, he said, "Everybody's his grasshopper." Yeah. And I said, "Well, I'd like to hang out with you." And he said, "Well, I'm a simple chef. Do you know how to cook?" And I said, "No." And he, he said, well, if you learn how to cook, you can come back and work in my kitchen. Uh-huh. So I asked him how, and he gave me the name of some cooking schools, and I went to those cooking schools. Really? Uh, yeah. Marcella, how many years? Uh, in, just in that next year, Marcella Hansen uh -huh. in Italy, uh -huh. and a fellow named Charlie in Bangkok. How, how long at each place? Week. Didn't learn much of anything, but came back with being able to say to him, I went. 
You could well, and also you could understand yeah. how things come together. Yeah, but yeah, enough that I could come back and say I went. Yeah, and I came back. He had no idea who I was, or you know. But uh, I said, "Well, you said I could work in the kitchen." And he said, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm leaving for Bangkok uh, right after the festival." So I asked him if I could come, and he said yes. And um, on that trip, we really bonded. We got to spend the week in Bangkok, um, and that just started our journey. And um, I, every year we would travel. Uh, he ended up, um, I, I ended up having a movie in Cannes for the next 12 or 15 years. He was the guy in Cannes. He did the Abfar thing and with Sharon Stone. Mm-hmm. And um, we'd take a bus and go for two weeks and travel. Eat, and eat. Eat and drink. Um, and you learned how to cook. And I learned how to cook through him. And I also um, got to see this amazing collection around the world of culinary artists who were treated exactly like the Afro-Americans were in the Chitlin Circuit. Uh-huh. It was the same thing. Was, right. Um, so I knew I had the skills to change it. And um, as I got to know the chefs, they sort of knew that too. So one day we all got together and decided we would change the game. And we started an agency. Um, I think about 65 of the, you know, Nobu, Wolfgang. Yeah. Emerald? Emerald. Um, the whole gang, every, Alice Waters, everybody. Uh-huh. Danielle, Daniel? Danielle. Um, and uh, changed the game around and uh, got the Food Network on the air and started to get products in stores and yeah. multiple restaurants. And started to, what, I, what I told him when I started with him is that um, Michael Jackson, if there weren't delivery systems like record players, yeah. MTV, stereos, he'd be a wandering minstrel, uh-huh. which is what they are. Yeah. So we need to develop home delivery systems, Food Network, get you in their house. Uh, spices get you in the store. Yeah. Videos, books. Just, yeah. Just like every other artist. Right. And once we started to do that, it really took off. So when you when you developed this relationship, did you just stop with show business? When did you stop no. with what what would be called? Well, obviously you still got Alice, but did you at some point say I'm done with this? Yeah, I, I had a moment in my life, just like everything else. It's always been moments. I had a. Um, premiere of a Wes Craven or a John Carpenter movie at Universal. Mm-hmm. Great carpet. Mm-hmm. All the stars. Yeah. Bored to death. Yeah. Um, flew to Maui the next day. Yeah. On my hammock by yeah. myself. Uh-huh. Having a vodka and lemonade. So excited. Like every molecule in my body. Yeah. Ecstatic. And I said, what's it all about? I'm going to die. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> So I flew into L.A. a couple of days later, called up Alice, asked him where he was. He said he was in L.A. And I said, could you get me? I don't want to have to drive after lunch. I'm getting very drunk. Yeah. And I resigned from everybody one morning. Everybody was happy except Luther. Luther felt deprived. Uh-huh. But everybody else was really happy for me. But I resigned from about 100 clients that day. Wow. Yeah. Mostly music. Mm, a lot of food. Some I'd say 20. Oh, this was after you started yeah, the food probably thing? Probably half and half. So, you, you know, you definitely left your mark, and yeah, you can yeah. feel proud yeah, I'm and grateful. Proud of, oh, I'm really proud of what I did. And you live healthy now? Yeah, yeah, really live a great no life. No booze? Yeah, oh, a lot of booze. <laughs> yeah. Smoke a lot of dope. Yeah. Uh, don't really do any of the harder drugs anymore. Um, no desire whatsoever. Yeah. Um, if I had a desire, I'd probably do them. Right. Because um, I never was out of control with it. Sure. There, You know, I have one kid who can't drink. He should never drink. Yeah really simple yeah you do what you can do i always had the tolerance right right uh, so yeah no I, I i have a couple of vodkas a day usually i just came from italy uh-huh. took, uh hunting for white truffles oh yeah and we drank it ate like 
Wildman. Uh-huh. Good time. <laughs> really good time. When you think about show business, when you think about who do you consider, you, you know, because you have a, a, a sort of accumulated a lot of your own wisdom and, and your own philosophy about things that sort of keeps you your outlook good. Who do you credit as your mentors? In, in the business? I, and then my mentors in life are um, Roger Berger, the chef, mm-hmm. um, the, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who I had a chance to serve, which I'm really... Food. I cooked for him and I serve on his board for the last. 20 but you're years. not a Buddhist. No, you um, just like him. And I like all. I love everything I hear. You know, all the Buddhist things that right. fit right into my life. Do you? Are you in touch with the Dalai Lama? No, not oh, at all. Right. Yeah, no, no, not at all. Um, and um, I would say Norman Lear from a distance. So alive and so he's in his nineties. Oh, so in the moment. Yeah. So positive and so willing to I love share. To, yeah, I was at a. Bob Saget's birthday party, and uh, we were out back with Norman and uh, and me and him and and Bill Burr smoked a cigar, and I was just it, it always like you as well because I'm not a I, I I do get a little compulsive. I don't drink or do drugs anymore, but like I like that at ninety something, he's like I can have a cigar. Fuck oh. it, yeah. Why not? We had dinner, and he was he looked at his phone. He said, "I'm just waiting to see if they picked up my Amazon series." <laughs> He's 94. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. You know, I think I keep... But what about in management? Um, I, I can't say that I had any real heroes in management. I have a lot of respect for Freddie DeMann, mm-hmm. who managed Michael Jackson yeah. and Madonna. Yeah. Thought he was really, really good. Yeah. Um, I think some of the old guys who... The uh, manager Seymour Heller, yeah, who managed Liberace for fifty years, but I didn't have a lot of contact with the managers, right? But I think there's going to be a moment um, where the artists maybe are going to be able to turn the tables a little bit. I, I'm starting to see little things starting to happen. Oh, definitely. Like um, Flo and Eddie have a lawsuit against Sirius. I don't know if you saw that. Really, really interesting lawsuit. Um, what they uncovered through the lawsuit um, is that the, they don't pay for pre-1972 copyrights. They were able to lobby Sirius to get a pass on paying any- Through sound exchange. That's the uh, that's like the ASCAP right. of, of satellite. But pre-72, they don't have to pay. No shit. But how did they accomplish it? They accomplished it by paying the record companies $345 million to agree to not take pre-72 royalties. Right. But the artists didn't agree. And the so, artists don't get a flow through. So on those oldies, those Turtles records, right? So the, the, they've had two court rulings now that Sirius can't play those records. That's big stuff. What about the back money? And that's where it's going to now is damages for the back. So it gets, I think it's, I, I, you know, I, all these little things I read, like I just read in, in, a, Fucking Wall, record in a Wall Street Journal article that one of the major record companies, I don't remember if it was Universal, mm-hmm. is getting a million dollars a day from Sirius Radio. No shit. A day. Not a week. A day. It's why they're so profitable. Nobody can figure out why these record companies are so profitable. Still. When you don't sell any records, because they don't pass it through. That's fucking insane. Yeah. So I think it's things are going to start changing maybe a little bit. The wow, flow, the flow on anyone's going to have a big impact for the back for the yeah. back money. Mm-hmm. So the artists have, have been but getting if, fucked. But once the microscope goes on, Irving's been screaming about this for a while. Yeah, what do you call that? Forensic accounting. Yeah, once so once this micro once this magnifying glass gets on it, and they start seeing 
that the record companies own the services that sort of determine how much money goes to the artist and well that, that that the payout there that the deals that are happening at the top levels of satellite music and the record companies for them to it, it's it's got nothing to do with the artists because they just think artists are just a bunch well you know they're that yeah, guy's dead they don't know better yeah, what's yeah. that guy yeah, doing yeah, 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 yeah. but the guys who were saying that are like we got more money coming in yeah, yeah. that's fucking unreal yeah. would be a great thing because it, it, well it, a lot of them are destitute and also we're going to lose all of our artists there's no there's no incentive for young people to go into music. But the weird thing about artists is that, like, you know, so, so few guys like you, and, you know, if you're a guy on the other side of it who's just trying to be an artist, you have that temperament, you know, you, you know, you, there, there was, it was in your mind that you're like, I got to get a guy like you right. to earn a living. Mm hmm. You know, so now that's changing a little bit because you can really find your you own audience your own, yeah. without yeah. anybody. Yeah. But also, like, you know, how do you find somebody you can trust and, you know, if it's you tough. want. Really tough. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you're a good guy, and I'm glad uh, you're alive. And I hope this uh, the book sells. But I, I'm not. You don't want it to get too big, right? No, not too big. Published <laughs> by Anthony Bourdain, by the way, which I'm very proud of. Yeah, he's a good cat. I had him. In, I've talked to him a couple times. Really good guy. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. yeah, he came up to me and said, "I want to write your book," and I said, "Why?" And he said, "Because uh, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be famous." And I said, well, I, "I've never met you. I don't know." He said, "No, no." He said, "You made Emerald Lagasse famous." And I made myself famous by beating up Emeril Lagasse. <laughs> so I owe you a coupon. <laughs> How many coupons you got out there? I got, I got a lot of coupons. All right. <laughs> Chef Gordon, thanks for talking. Thank you. Okay. Moving forward. We can do it. Let's just stay in touch. Let's keep talking. All right? A lot of broken hearts out there. A lot of uh, fear. A lot of that was manifested in rage and anger. So now what do we do with ours? Let's not fall into ourselves. Let's keep doing what we do and doing it harder. <sighs> Let's bring it in. No guitar today. I gotta go act. I guess we all do. Boomer lives! <laughs> <laughs>